This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. On today's show, we visit with Noah Wilson Rich, PhD, author of The Bee, A Natural History, a TED speaker and owner of The Best Bees Company. I met him back in January at the Honey Love Natural Beekeeping Conference. I had to tease him a little bit because back in 2018, I interviewed for a job at the Best Bees Company and I didn't get it. But he got down on bended knee and offered me the most sincere of apologies. Good morning. Hi, and who's your friend? This is Thor. He's my son's cockatiel. And we have this little routine that we do every morning where after the boys go to school, I get my coffee and I grab my laptop and I come in here and he oversees my productivity. I love it. Yeah. And he has a buddy that's over there. He may or may not land on my head at some point. Um, He's a little parakeet and he's just full of spunk and he can talk and he's just the coolest little thing. Wow. Yeah. I was going to do the call in my studio, but I couldn't get connected to the Wi-Fi out there. So at the last minute, I ran in here and, and <laughs> he's right back. <laughs> and we make it happen, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Thank <laughs> you for sitting with me this morning. Mandy, it's a pleasure. Yeah. I'm so glad we got to meet each other at the Natural Beekeeping Conference. And I have to admit, Mandy. when I saw the lineup, I was already... Not sure where I fit in with the natural beekeeping identity because though I do employ natural beekeeping practices, I also do apply treatments to my colonies if needed. And so I wasn't sure where I fit in with all of that. And then I saw that you were going to be there too. And I didn't know where you fit in with the under the, the umbrella of natural beekeeping. But I also felt like they were, they were sort of expanding their conversation which was really cool. Yeah. Mandy, it was so great to meet you too. I mean, your reputation completely precedes you in the best of ways. You know, Portland is such a special place and it's great that the things you do there resonate to people in other places because we're all learning together. And that's the beauty of a conference like the Natural Beekeeping uh, meeting that Honey Love in LA was so awesome to put on. I mean, it's great to be there. As a scientist myself, I'm always thinking, what do the data show? How does that inform the actions that we take in beekeeping and in life? So it's great to come together to share because people have seen some papers and people know of other things, but that collective knowledge won't happen until we start talking and coming together. Exactly. And so cool we get to continue our conversation. (laughs) I think that um, Les Crowder said it best when he said, the only way that we're going to rise is if we rise together. Yeah. We don't need to argue. Let's all sit at the table together and talk. I love it. And crunch the numbers. (laughs) Yeah, crunch the numbers and in a kind way. It's so fitting with this political environment today, too. So I'm I'm feeling the love, feeling the energy. Awesome. So, wow. You are owner of Best Bees. Yeah, the Best Bees Company. This is a big company. Yeah, (laughs) it's crazy. How did it happen? Because you Uh, also have a PhD. I do. (laughs) You're a person that likes to achieve a lot of things, and you're really good at it. 
<laughs> so are you, Mandy. I mean, <laughs> you know, all of us in life, we've got our little wins and that's all we can really have control over. And we've got to take the W's when they come and we've got to share them in any way that makes sense with the community to broaden what we do. The little wins often we hold them so close to our hearts and there's often trauma that comes along with them. You know, there's sacrifice. Often winning means somebody else lost. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to get our heads around in this competitive world. But it's one of the things I love about beekeeping. And even though some egos come into the room, it, it, we all know it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So for me, I really always rejected the existing system of, of beekeeping, so to speak, in that I did go to extended school for it, and I wanted to deeply understand what we knew and what we didn't, especially about how bees resist diseases. So for me in college, I was pre-med. I went to Northeastern University in Boston. That's what brought me to Boston. And I, I studied biology. I did the co-op program there, so internships. And I was thinking about medical school. So I worked at Children's Hospital in Boston for years. Oh, and I, loved I it. can totally picture that. And I bet the kids completely loved you. You know, well, I, I hope they did, but I sure <laughs> loved them. And I worked in a clinic that was where kids would get IV infusions of whatever they needed. So whether wow. it's blood transfusions or medicines, and I would be the guy to take their temperature and their vital signs. And I got to know them and they were there because they were sick and some kids were dying and I would stare out the window and the windows didn't open and I would be like, oh my God, I need to retire. And I was an intern, you know, and I'd be like, this is great service, but I need outdoor stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when I was getting ready to graduate, I talked to my advisors. I had really cool teachers. One was named Wendy Davis. One was Becky Rosengauss. They both worked with insects. And I thought that was super weird. Like, ugh, why do you work with termites? <laughs> We work with, with silkworms. And they said, look, there's a program studying bees where you can go to graduate school instead of medical school and you can study how bees resist diseases and how they stay healthy. They don't have doctors, hospitals, nurses, and pharmacies, and yet they've been around for 100 million years. So what can we humans learn about how they stay healthy? And I was like, that's cool. I can work outside. And I applied and I got in. And so I went to Tufts and it was the only program I got into. I applied to five. So you're with the really Tufts Pollinator Initiative? I was there before it, oh, unfortunately. Okay. But Rachel Noen, who is amazing and went to the same lab that I was in, she was one of the founders, if not the foundress. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful legacy there. So Tufts has some really great people. Ann Madden also came out of our lab. She gave a great TED Talk. Um, so wonderful people doing great things. <laughs> Graduating with no jobs. That's a really important point especially for me and for Anne, it was a recession when we graduated around 2009, 2010. I was looking around and I thought, oh man, I'm really onto something with my bee research. I was looking at how bees stay healthy. How, did I, how can I fund this? How do I get a job when the recession is just making the bottom fall out? So I started a Facebook page and I said, I'm selling beehives. I'll volunteer my time to manage them in exchange for research funding. Anybody want some bees? I thought it was so stupid of an idea. And my mother just hit light for months and comments. She still does. My oh, team, mom. Yeah, this is 11 years ago now. I mean, it, the idea just eventually took off. And now we've raised over $5 million for bee research to date. And I, you know, I created my own job and a job for like 75 other beekeepers 
and this idea to have a national network that maybe one day will be international so that we can all come together in an inclusive way where we're all studying and collecting data from beehives to best inform our practices. I'm still on that kind of recession run, making it up as we go. In all of this time, what are you seeing? Oh, yeah, it's so interesting. So we're seeing trends. First off, our research question is where are bees surviving? What improves bee health? We flipped that research question around colony collapse disorder because times between 2006 and 2011, when CCD was at its peak, times are really, 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 really depressing. And so many people are asking what's killing bees. And Ben Oldroyd wrote a great paper about this in 2007. And he really succinctly in four pages listed out what's killing bees, the top hypotheses. And I love that paper. May Berenbaum also wrote in the New York Times in 2007. She was at the Natural Beekeeping Conference. I had the biggest nerd moment going up to her and I said, hey, you don't know me, but I have been such a big fan. Your work has inspired mine. I wrote a piece in the New York Times in 2014 to bookend your piece to just share what we knew at that time as an update. And I mean, she was like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. You want to take a picture together? And I was like, yes. <laughs> So I took a lot of inspiration from them, but I wanted to flip it to make it positive. So instead of what's killing bees, our question is what's saving them. Mm -hmm. So first we look at maps and we understand where are beehives doing better? Where are the bees making the most honey on a map? Where are they surviving the longest? Where do they have the, less, the least amount of disease, um, the less amount of pesticides? And, um, and those questions helped show us that this urban beekeeping trend, it wasn't just like for hipsters in Brooklyn, or it wasn't just like for Mandy in Portland. And right. you know, it, it, just, it wasn't only for the cool kids. It was really <laughs> something that was helping the bees. And that was something that's so important to understand because often with trends and fads and fashion, those come in and they go out. But when we started to provide data to show that the work that you're doing, it really is making a difference. And you can breed from bees in healthy areas to replace dead beehives in bad areas like farmland or very rural areas or, or suburban areas with lawns. Those places had dead bees. And if we don't understand what we call in ecology source and sink population dynamics, sources is where we can breed things and sinks is where they can die out. This is a natural trend, but we apply that phenomenon to beekeeping now that we understand that we should really be breeding bees, not only in urban areas, but our research is now showing that the higher up the beehives are on skyscraper rooftops, the healthier they are. Really? <laughs> I'm terribly scared of heights. So... I kind of love that idea, though. It's Yeah, it's a very weird thing. I started um, working on a new TED Talk. Just, you know, doing another TED Talk. I'm just working I, on I, yeah. it. <laughs> you know, for me, TED or National Geographic or any of these other platforms of NASA, they're in the Natural Beekeeping Conference. Any opportunity for me as a scientist to communicate what I know and what I'm seeing as trends in the data, the more I can communicate that, the more I can amplify that message, the more yeah. others can access it and then share it too yeah totally and grad school that's so frustrated publishing in science journals that nobody's gonna read people have to pay twenty dollars a copy like this is ridiculous so i want to break that model this is why i started the podcast yes exactly it's, it's a free way for people to get information from a lot of different perspectives it's an opportunity to hear stories i i am so grateful that you do this Andy. thanks for <laughs> Um, can we talk about public speaking? Yeah. I never knew that the public speaking course that I took in college would carry me through 
to my beekeeping journey and become such an important part of that. And what I've discovered is if you're a beekeeper and you can get up in front of a group, you're going to get emails and phone calls for speaker requests on the regular. (laughs) But you've done that at a whole other level. For me, the thought of doing a TED Talk seems like head to toe terrifying. (laughs) What is what is the scariest part of that idea in your head? I think it's because it is such a a well-known facet of information. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, there would be intensive pressure for I better have all my information right. But how well, do you yeah. deliver the information and still sound like a human being and not like a robot? And I think that's something that <laughs> you do really well. Uh, you're sweet. I, well, for me, you know, for me, my training as a scientist really involved years of people asking me questions and saying, well, where's that information coming from? And that gave me comfort in responding to those questions and, and people checking me and, and checking myself and knowing like with sharing information, that's responsibility. Mm-hmm. So whatever you share, first off, I say with a talk, whether it's a big TED talk or whether it's a talk in your local community, you should treat them the same, the exact same. Because whatever you say, people are listening and they want to listen because you decided yourself, you have something to say. Only give a talk <laughs> if you have something to say. And that should be something interesting and I think new. And your perspective alone can be new. You don't have to be an expert at science or data. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a perspective. Everybody does have something to say. So everybody has the right, I say, to give a talk. <laughs> and whatever you say, just you should make sure that it's true and you should yeah. welcome people fact checking you. Um, continuously and even after you give the talk if somebody says hey I don't think that was true then you should be prepared to be humble and say you know I think I need to issue a correction on that point Um, in a way that doesn't it's kind of separated from emotions you know facts data they're just their numbers and you should always be open to being well-rounded not you but one yeah yeah and that I think allows you a little freedom to be vulnerable, kind of like when you go into a beehive and it might seem scary to the first time beekeeper, but over time, it's so relaxing. It's the same way with speaking. Once you just get up on stage, you know what your perspective is. That's your own. Nobody can tell you how you see the world. There's a lot of relaxation. And once you're calm and relaxed, you're no longer a robot because you're speaking from the heart. Do you still get nervous, though, when you get up and talk in front oh. of a big room of people? Totally. I still run to the bathroom before talks. I still, you know, I still sweat. I still run through my lines. I still mess up every talk. You know, I don't share that with people, but every talk I give them, I was like, uh, I said that wrong. I forgot to say this. Why did I talk about that story? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think all of those errors are also what make it seem less robotic. You need to just go yeah. with it. And we're all human. Everybody wants to. Nobody's looking for the perfect talk. We're just looking for what's that person's perspective. So it's always right. And maybe the perspective in that natural speech pattern and not being completely scripted. Maybe that is the talk that everybody wants. Totally. And you know, with TED Talks, they've changed. At least from my experience over the years, my first one in 2012 of TEDx Boston. I I didn't know what TED was. I mean, I really I was lecturing (laughs) like at least 10 hours a week. So when they wanted me to give a 10 minute talk in downtown Boston, I was like, the commute is going to be longer than the talk. I mean, this is, I was worried about the commute. I said, I don't know about time of my day. I don't know who these people were, but I just said, look, here's about urban beekeeping. Here's what we're seeing. These are doing better in cities. 
in Cambridge, it was Harvard Square. Of course, the Harvard people like to go above and beyond everything. Their bees were doing great. And then in the South <laughs> Yeah, so it was like a cute little talk. I had no idea. I gave a practice talk. They said, cool, don't change it. I said, great, can I go home now? So from then to the, I gave two other talks. The other ones, the most recent one, 2018, it had to be very scripted. The script had to get approved. This was locally organized, but also when I applied to give a main stage TED talk in 2020, that also had to be approved, go through their curators. So now it has to be very memorized, very rehearsed. And um, do they give you any sort of teleprompter? So while you're up there, no. you oh, okay. So you really have to know your lines. You really have to know your lines. And in 2018 at TEDx Provincetown, there was a technical error, maybe two minutes into my talk, and they stopped it. So <laughs> the recorded version, it was my second round. And luckily, I have to say, like I was so rehearsed at that point that I I was like, cool, I'm going to stop my line at you know, page two and a half and I'm just going to restart. And, and I was so rehearsed at that point that it was okay for me, but it was a very different experience. So I think people should be prepared to give either type of talk mm -hmm. off the cuff, raw, honest, vulnerable. And then of course, very well rehearsed like your public speaking. And, and also for me, I have, I've had a lot of acting training as a kid. I taught oh, at an improv. Cool. So I think improv is a very helpful tool for anybody. And it's fun. Yeah. You could apply improv to any any facet in your life beekeeper improv that would be hysterical for next year's <laughs> or did you have something to add Thor is this beautiful kind of dusty gray color mm -hmm. with some orange yellow and and white and it, Thor makes me think about this the story of Alex the gray parrot in uh, at Brandeis oh, University yes and Alex is a great um uh, organism to study emotions and cognition in non-human animals well, in talking with uh, with Matt Reed, also a wonderful Portland beekeeper too, he and his son love to explore amphibians and uh, kind of creatures in the natural waterways. Yeah. And uh, as a kid, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. I would, with school, we would go to our local watershed um, in Fairfield and like, the Mill River, and we would collect insects and identify them as students. And we would compare their identities to a pollution tolerance index. Oh and my we gosh. Would, we would understand the local waterways by looking at if we collected more insects that were very pollution tolerant, then that would mean that it's kind of polluted. And if we collected more sensitive insects, then we knew it was a bit healthier. Mm -hmm. And so maybe your connection with birds and Matt's connection with amphibians and mine with these kind of insects allow us through beekeeping to remain connected to the natural world and to keep curious and stay exploring. Mm -hmm. You know, I I tried to work as a artist for many years and you know, Portland is such an artistic town and the market, you know, for the craft fairs and the artisan shows is just so heavily saturated that I mm. though I was creating something unique, it wasn't I know. Um <laughs> nothing really stuck. But huh. then when I got into beekeeping, I suddenly had a voice that I could use in the community. I was making all these connections and yeah. doing something that I really felt like I was powerfully making a difference in my community. Yeah. Your human community and your natural community. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that must resonate with so many listeners, with so many beekeepers out there who we do so much. And, you know, at MIT, that's my current academic affiliation, 
we've gone from this idea of what's your discipline? So me as I'm a biologist, we've moved away from that to then interdisciplinary teams. So where people can start to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a biologist, but at, at MIT, I work with artists and designers and architects with Neri Oxman, that's who I work with there. We've moved past that now to where we're at as anti-disciplinarians. So it's like back to Mandy and Nola, right? Can we all just be real people with multiple interests? We don't have to pick one lane anymore. Yeah. And explore these different elements of ourselves in an inclusive way that allows us all to make progress on our mission, but also on our happiness. Yes, that's so important. And I think as a beekeeping entrepreneur, I have found you have to have a whole bag of tricks. You can't just focus on like one thing. You have to be so many different things that you can offer, not only because of the the cyclical nature of bee season, but also it's hard to find enough people that are willing to pay for beekeeping services in an urban area. It's like yeah. there's lots of other other things that you can offer to to make income. Totally. And then one saying I have is just because we can doesn't mean we should. Right. So there's so many things that beekeepers can do as well as general people. But with beekeepers, we can sell honey. We can make products from the beeswax. We can sell a beekeeping service. We can do art on beehives. We can do education and talks until our faces turn blue. Mm -hmm. But we're going to just fall down exhausted if we don't kind of stay focused as an entrepreneur on one thing at a time and figure out how to grow. How do we scale? What does this look like when we want to include more people? How do we elevate and empower those people and make them feel like wonderfully important people instead of like just employees or like just somebody working at the register? Because beekeeping is so special. So how do we keep that special despite the entrepreneurial aspect to it? How do we in a grassroots way, lift everybody up while doing good. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How has that journey been for you as Best Bees Company has grown? It's been really um, hard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's, hard- let's rewind like back to the back to the early days when you realized you were spread too thin and realized <laughs> you needed help. Like, when did you know it was time to take that step and start bringing on other people to help you? Oh, such a great question. So, I mean, I'm still there. I mean, who is who? It, I would love to meet a person who's not spread too thin and <laughs> just like do a retreat at their house for the weekend, you know? So I, I do strive to be there and I do intend to be at that point. But in the meantime, you know, I started the idea for the Best Piece Company in 2009. I didn't finish up my PhD until December 2010. So the first year when I launched this company, I was still in graduate school and it was not okay to start a business. Actually, where I was in graduate school, you, you couldn't have a job beyond campus. It was really difficult to live on. We had a stipend, thank goodness, but it was. It, I had a hard time, so I was also bartending, you know, for six years. Um, and so my advice is like, don't quit your day job when you're starting any yeah. business. Um, I've never had an investor to this day, and so everything is bootstrapped. And what I did with the Facebook page, you know, no money there. I was very honest, and I said, anybody wants some bees? And eventually, you know, somebody wrote in, and I took the city bus. I didn't have a car, and I went to that person's house, and we had tea, and uh, you know, I just spoke with them. And then they said, okay, I want to do it. How does this work? And I said, um, why don't you write me a check, and I'll go buy the materials. So he did that. His name was John. 
he worked at Google in Cambridge. And so he gave me a check and I went then to go buy, I had to figure out where to buy bee supplies because even though I had been working with bees at that point for five, six years, I had never installed my own beehive. I was only managing them at the school and studying them. So I had to learn and I joined a beekeeping association, Essex County Beekeepers Association in Northern Massachusetts. Met wonderful people there, learned how to build beehives, sourced from the, bee, uh, the beekeeper's warehouse just north of Boston with Nancy Mangione. I mean, she was amazing. Nancy is open. I don't know if she's even still open. Thursdays from 4 to 8 p.m. I mean, it was this whole store, but she's only open four hours a week, and you had to sit and drink wine with her. And she just, like, <laughs> really, she's amazing, but, like, she would sell llama poop for her gardens. I mean, she's this amazing character, amazing woman, but a little difficult because I was like Nancy I got to start a business I'm trying to take this seriously yeah. you know and as we grew I was sourcing more things from her and she said Noah you're buying too much <laughs> it's amazing time of beekeeping personality and these people are everywhere and it's this joy of the beekeeping community but I, I was learning as I went and once I installed the beehive I got the remaining balance for the rest of the um, the year to um, really fund the research to do and I at, at the first year I realized I had seven beehives. I thought this is a lot oh. to track numbers. The second year, 2011, I had 12 beehives. And that's when I was like, I can't track this on sticky notes and whiteboards alone yeah. because I was recording data. The third year, 2012, we had 65 beehives. And I was like, I, I need... I need software. I need help. I was losing my mind. I was paying my friends in pizza and beer to build <laughs> lives together on the street, like on sidewalks. You have a picture uh, at my friend's apartment. I mean, I would just have pizza parties for all my friends to come in and help build equipment and help harvest honey. They would install beehives with me. I would cry at beehives when I was installing the packages at night where I didn't have the equipment built. Um, I would, so I had a hammer, I had a foundation and I had to just build the frames at night. I had to install the hives at night. I mean, I was really like, the oh wheels are blowing gosh. I was going crazy. So out of brute force, I learned this lesson where I can't do this on my own. And so I had to get help. One of my friends was really affected by the recession, Cahill, who's my business partner today. And he has these amazing software engineering skills. And I knew he did. He knew how to build a computer system. So I took him to a bar called the Burren near Tufts in Davis Square in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I kept buying him drinks until I got him to agree to be my business partner. And as <laughs> we signed a napkin that was like, we're doing, we're doing this. And to this date, you know, every day that software system, which we call Buzz, that's something that we update daily. We've now got full-time coders, this wonderful, like, girls who code, this wonderful young woman named Libby. And it's just this cool environment where um, every time we change up our research question, we can tweak up our, our software, and that um, has an app now. So all of our beekeepers, we can scale because of our software. Everybody just downloads the app at the beehive, records data on their phone. And then that data goes to our, our, we have a 501c3 nonprofit now. We launched that in 2014. So they analyze the data and then report it to our partners like NASA and Harvard and MIT. You know, little, little known places like those. <laughs> but it's you may have heard of, it. you may have heard of NASA. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, with those, there's no money exchanged. It's all through community. It's yeah. all through building partnerships That's and beautiful. just being vulnerable and saying, like, "Hey, guys, here's what we're trying to do. I'm making this up as I go." Um, but Science Magazine in 2013 covered this new science funding model where grants weren't coming through, and it was like, "Hey, here's a researcher who's just selling bees to try to get funding," and it was just this new crazy idea. Um, but maybe you know, it's 11 years later, and it, we're still going. Oh so. Gosh. Knock on wood. <laughs> Here's how we scaled the Best Bees Company's team. We started with student interns. And uh, I think I had a therapist at the time who was like, get some interns, find schools that are not allowing their students to get paid. So you are not allowed to feel badly. Oh. And I thought, really? And that's what we did, Mandy. And so we found some schools in the Boston area where there's a ton of schools like Simmons College, Emanuel College, and Leslie University come to mind. I think that those are three schools where their students had to do internships but didn't, couldn't get paid yeah. for whatever reason. Um, and so we still have great programs with them. And some of those schools, I certainly know like Northeastern University where the students do have to get paid. And the, those computer science students get paid like $40 an hour for their internships. It's crazy, but we could have an intern for a finite period of let's say six months working on this project. Yes, we'd have to pay them, but maybe we can find some financing for that, for that finite period. So, you know, on that timeline, here's how much it's gonna cost, here's exactly what we're gonna have, and that person's mm -hmm. doing it full time. For people listening, everybody's got some questions. And as a scientist, it's always like, come back to the question we're asking. And I think also for you, that you're thinking like, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? You know, for me, how do we improve bee health? And I think a lot of people think about these things, but we don't necessarily talk to others about the thoughts that come next. And I think that's the real value. You know, for us with our research, we found that in areas where bees do best, there are still high levels of pesticides and there are still high levels of disease. Mm -hmm. And that's really confusing because yeah. despite high levels of pesticides and despite high levels of disease, the bees are still thriving. Bees are still making high amounts of honey and they're still lo living longer despite this. So what is it? Because we know that pesticides and diseases can and do kill bees. So it's not saying that those things are good, but it's also saying that if we remove pesticides from the market and if we cure all disease, it doesn't necessarily mean that the bees are just gonna do great. There are other things at play. And I think that that's what's really important to explore because so many researchers are still exploring diseases and pesticides. It's big ag, it's government level in the United States and in Europe. I mean, this is like bigger than what any one or two beekeepers can do. Like the Natural Beekeeping Conference, many of us do organic practices. That's great, but you never know what the next beekeeper is doing. And it's like, well, what are we really doing here? So what I think is really important for people to understand and the question of what's saving bees is that it looks like, this is gonna sound corny to people, but it looks like planting a flower works. <laughs> and what I mean by that is what we've looked at habitat, habitat quality, plant diversity, that seems so far to be the leading hypothesis or the leading reason for why beehives are doing better where they are. What we've done is we test honey and we look at the plant DNA and we've talked about this before a lot, but you know, this, it's called honey DNA and this is something that's, uh, it's a genomics test. So like ancestry DNA or 23andMe. Have I asked you if you've done these before those kids? No, but I have. And I have a very and confidential discussion we could have about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so you found some surprising results, it sounds like. Yes. 
it's a consequence really I mean there's yeah. great responsibility that comes with this you know yeah and on the plant side I guess we don't really find like any who's your daddy type of results <laughs> but what we have found from looking at the plant DNA and honey is we have found endangered species of plants that we don't see and we humans assume that they're gone, but from a bee's eye view, we now have this unbiased tracking system of where pollinators wow. are going. Isn't that cool? Super so cool. We could, we could even potentially like triangulate using beehives with three beehives to get the honey DNA results and see if there's an endangered species that pops up in each of the three. It gives us a percent match of what percent of the honey comes from that plant. Mm -hmm. So we could potentially using like protractors on a map with that old school method of like the distance from the beehive yeah. try to then find the endangered species too by using this technology that's an inadvertent result just like we're talking with people so that's what we've done with the honey it's important for people to understand when bees don't have good nutrition yes that's when they start to succumb to all of the other pressures Totally. You are spot on, Mandy. And you had mentioned the Tufts Pollinator Initiative, but Rachel Benoen, Rachel Benoen is an amazing young scientist. She focuses on bee nutrition, and now she's also done some stuff with butterflies, which is so cool. Uh, she really helped us better understand why bees forage. One of her talks is why do bees forage in dirty water? Mm. They're looking for salts. They're looking for other minerals to supplement their diet. We understand from the scientific literature that when bees are fed honey versus sugar water, they can better metabolize pesticides. They break them down on their own. At the Natural Beekeeping Conference, May Berenbaum talked us through the cytochrome P450 pathways. So the molecular pathways, they're better aided and facilitated with good nutrition that comes from honey. We also know that bees can better withstand disease when they have a healthier diet. And so the question then for beekeepers is when we're looking at beehives and we still see disease and we still know there's pesticides in the wax, well, then what? And it comes down to nutrition and that comes down to planting flowers. And it comes down also to this new technology, this honey DNA and in the Better Bee Kit, you know, Better Bee Catalog, one of the great beekeeping supply companies, it's now accessible. It's certainly not at a cheap price, but as the technology gets more common, the pricing will come down. That's what happens with all new technologies. And what this does is allows any beekeeper on the world to look at their honey and get a map of what all the pollinator plants are around their area. And they can plant more of those. They can think, how do I promote this? How can I cause an improvement in bee health? That's the next phase of our research. And what's so cool is that it's a citizen science approach. So any age from kids to elderly, any culture, any ability, whether you're an able person, whether you use a facilitated device to, for mobility, anybody can plant flowers. Anybody can talk to their community about which plants are important from the honey DNA list, which ones are culturally relevant. You can talk to your grandparents and say, here's the list, which ones of these did we use in soups, you know, going back generations. So you can build community around saving bees. So that's what we're seeing as these next steps over the next few years. That's so um, exciting. You know, that, that's something I say to people when I go and do talks like out in the community to non-beekeepers. Like you don't have to be a beekeeper to save the bees. Totally, totally. Everybody, everybody needs to play a role now. Everybody needs yeah. to get up. You can do what I love, guerrilla gardening. Anybody find <laughs> a spot of land that it just looks underused and just throw some do a seed bomb of native plant, native seeds to your area. Yes. And things that you need love. Cheerios caught a little bit of heat when they were giving out those seed packets. That's right. 
Yeah, it's really difficult to do a large scale campaign of here's pollinator seeds when it's being dispersed over large geographic areas. Mm -hmm. You have to be very sensitive to what the local areas have and what the local people want to promote. What I've started doing, talking about speaking, you know, I now have a speaking agent, which is super fun, outspoken, they're called. <laughs> what I'm doing now for my keynote talks to any audience, whether it's conferences or big companies or beekeepers, is I debut the honey DNA results to that local area. Oh, so that's example, cool. This year on Earth Day, you know, in the past for Earth Day or Earth Week, I've given eight talks a week. You know, at Best Bees County, we're doing like 20 talks in that day across the country. Oh it's exhausting. but. I'll be at the University of Wisconsin. Never been there before. I'm so excited. And we've already got our local beekeepers. We, we sourced honey from. We have the tests happening right now to analyze what those honey DNA results will be for the local Wisconsin area. And I'll debut that at the university to all of the students and say, here's what we need to then plant so that all my talks are scalable, but they're also very local. And I'm able to debut the results for any local group, changing it all up to say, here's the local plants. I'll take it one last step further, Mandy. When we're looking at areas that are hard hit by natural disasters, whether it's Puerto Rico from Hurricane Maria, whether it's California for fires, or you know Australia for these fires, or tsunamis in Japan, we're able to look at the honey before and after these natural disasters to study what we've lost and to study what we can replace and how to plant more of these things that were lost or, or more of the things that came back first. This will help empower local citizens to improve our resiliency against climate change at the local level, mm -hmm. all from information coming from beehives. That is all super next level awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And you're doing it all with a smile. How exciting to be able to gather that information and then share it with the communities that it came from. That must turn on so many light bulbs for so many people when they hear that and it's being delivered in a way that that makes sense and it's meaningful and it's actionable. And what's in it for me is that it allows me to like move on so that other people can take this stuff and run with it. Almost like how artists work, you know, here's my project and I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's what makes me feel inspired because I want to be on to the next thing. And I love being able to share this with people here. You take the data, you take the information and run with it. Here's like the open patent, go do your thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so I love this opportunity to talk with you here and also offline because the ideas that you have that I have, we can just try to launch them in a way that I call one plus one equals three. How do you and I, Mandy, come together and we can build something greater than what we do individually? So what is next, Noah? Yeah, what is next? What is well, the next thing? Yeah, well, that was kind of an updated thing with research. Uh, I mean, we've got crazy research things like with MIT students, we've been sending bees into space, which is crazy, but they all come back alive. <laughs> and this, the, we've done it, um, humans have done this three times in history where bees in space tend to do better than bees on the ground. They build their comb in different directions, whereas right in the earth, we can uh, only build towards gravity. They So they don't, there's no, uh, they're not in a, in a, space with any controlled gravity that's right no gravity how so how do they not just float everywhere how do they yeah isn't that amazing so what we found actually uh and this, there was another student group from another university that did it a little differently and unfortunately their bees didn't make it i heard but we put the capsule in a beehive before we launched the bees so that mm -hmm. they build honeycomb it smells like home and they have something to grab onto. Okay. And 
So we had two capsules, each with a queen that was marked and some of her attendees. And um, they all hunkered down. They protected the queen. They maintained their social order. Um, they protected her during launch. Um, and it was really interesting to see how they maintained their social structure. They didn't really fly around. They, they were just crawling on the comb. And so we didn't see a lot of flight. What this relates to is a couple things. There's an idea that maybe bees can be released from Varroa. We haven't really tested that yet, but maybe gravity can knock them off. I mean, that's a little silly idea. But more <laughs> so for humans, you know, thinking about how bees are pollinators for humans, when we have agriculture in space, when you're thinking about astronauts, when we're thinking about colonizing the moon, when we're thinking about Mars, how do we have pollinators in an actual ecosystem that, that functions sustainably? Mm -hmm. Of course, we want to do this research on the Earth. This is something that is a criticism of space bees and that type of research. Why are we trying to do this away from Earth, we need to be focused on saving our planet here. We can't be leaving. So what's the future of research? That's some crazy stuff that yeah. MIT is working on. What's the future of the Best Bees Company? One thing we're working towards is potentially a franchise model or a way to empower local beekeepers in their own communities, just like you're doing, Mandy, in Portland. How do we work with beekeepers to build the businesses that we know everybody can do and everybody wants to do, but it's been very hard to make it click. Mm -hmm. And so with this technology that we've developed, we're hoping that this can be a great tool to empower beekeepers to own their own local companies, maybe by licensing this great brand that we've built, um, but certainly with their own, but how do you do it at scale? And in a network, the benefit of a network, like in Portland, you've got a great community there, but what if somebody in New York City says to another beekeeper, hey, do you know anybody in Portland? Mm -hmm. Having a network allows for everybody to build our businesses together. And if we do it with the Best Bees Company, then that connects it all to research that has this affiliated nonprofit that can just maybe make it easier. So it's not a requirement for beekeepers to do business by any means, but it's something that we're thinking about a lot because I think that this is what it's going to take to scale at a local level but globally too in a way that feels good for beekeepers and can help people make money in addition to saving the bees god forbid mm -hmm. yeah that was something that we had talked about is just how hard it is to make a living um as a beekeeping entrepreneur yeah that's yeah. got to change well and that's really what we fight for. for for beekeepers we can't keep working this hard for for this little money and um it can change and it will change i'm really committed to that to learn more about Noah and his work, you can visit bestbees.com or ted.com to see his TED Talks. If you've been enjoying the show, consider liking and sharing on social media or leaving a review on iTunes. I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw, where you can become a patron like our newest patron, Audrey. Thank you all for listening. I hope you're healthy and safe wherever you are. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw. Thor has, he's talking. Can you hear that? Yeah, and he's moving his head. Thor's awesome. What do you think he's saying? He's going, yeah, bees, yeah, bees. <laughs> 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 no, I don't know what it means. <laughs>